I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. So, like everybody, we've been following the February 14 shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, where 17 students and adults died. This is a broad and difficult story with many angles to cover. The partisan fight over gun control legislation or the lack thereof, the decision by major American corporations like Dick's Sporting Goods and Walmart to stop selling assault rifles, President Trump's perpetual waffling over what the hell he actually thinks, the barking insanity of the NRA, the rise of the remarkable Never Again movement spearheaded by the student survivors at Parkland. So for this episode, we want to bring in the books and the authors who've covered territory like this before. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to Daniel Evans, the author of the prize-winning story collection before you suffocate your own fool self about how frequently children in literature are smarter than their parents and why other than just plain old realism this might be (laughs) but first we're going to talk to jim shepard the prize winning you know what honestly screw the prizes the totally awesome author of seven novels and five short story collections about his 2004 novel project x which was written in the wake of the 1999 shootings at columbine jim thanks for being on the show yeah thanks for having me I am a huge fan of your work and of this novel, Project X, in particular. Um, Could you just talk to us about when you decided you wanted to write about this subject? I mean, obviously, Columbine, which was 1999, right? Am I remembering all that right? Yeah, I think so. Right around there. But what, what, what about that event made you think that you wanted to write about it? You know, was it the place? Was it the ages of the people involved? Their class? Was it guns or, or something else? Well, I was a pretty alienated kid myself in junior high and high school, And after Columbine happened, I remember being appalled at the way the right wing in America was able to shape the debate about the catastrophe as being not about access to a certain kind of gun, but more about, you know, mental illness or the pernicious influence of the media or lack of parental discipline. 
And I remember, <clears throat> I remember an experience I'd had in eighth grade in which a kid we all knew was seriously dangerous. And he was just miserable about being messed with all the time, sat at our lunch table and told us he was going to bring in his dad's hunting rifle the next day and kill some of the kids who'd been screwing with him all year. And we all like just sat there and seriously discussed the pros and cons of the plan. That was the kind of school we were at. Oh, and we went oh back God. and forth about it. <clears throat> you know, we were like, you know, that's got some pros and cons. And uh, <laughs> I remember the point that finally made us all agree, and we ended up being unanimous, that it wouldn't be worth it, <clears throat> was when somebody pointed out that with a hunting rifle, you'd only get three or four guys at most before everybody else jumped on you. <clears throat> and that, you know, it just wouldn't be worth it if you're only killing three or four people. But if that kid had told us at that point, well, you know what? I also have an automatic weapon and I have an infinite number of clips. You know, I'm not sure we would have had an adequate rebuttal at that point. So I remember thinking, I want to write about those kids. I want to write about what it means to put that kind of power in that kind of kid's hands when that kid, you know, if you catch him on the wrong Thursday is capable of doing something incredibly awful. But if you wait till that following Sunday, it's just your normal kid again, you know? Oh, gosh. Well, for our listeners who may not have read the novel yet, though, if this is the case, they're obliged to buy it immediately. Could you just set the story up and maybe read a passage for us? Oh, yeah. You know, it turns out I have just enough narcissism to be willing to read from my own work. Um, you make everybody do it. <laughs> yeah, right? I love when Sugi does that. Um, uh, to set it up, the novel is about a pair of radically alienated eighth graders, uh, Hanratty and Flake, and it's narrated by Hanratty. And at this point in the novel, Flake has proposed a mount, a Columbine-like attack on the school. And Hanratty has said when he agreed to go along with it that he's not just playing around. Um, and the scene I'm about to read follows uh, yet another humiliation in which they've been reminded that they are at the very, very bottom of their crappy school's pecking order. <clears throat> the scene goes like this. Uh, you still pissed, I asked them the next day, which is a Saturday. His dad and mom are spending the afternoon getting shown around a condo they're not going to buy so they can get a free TV. Flakes pulled out the guns and ammo, and we're making sure we know how everything fits together. You still pissed, he goes in a pussy voice. I tilt up the carbine's barrel. Put this in your mouth, I go. He's got newspapers spread on his dad's bed so we don't get oil on the blanket. The Kalashnikov's easy. You can see right where the clip goes. At first, I don't want to put it in because I'm worried we won't be able to get it out. We're going to have to get it out at school, he says. We are, I go. What happens when you want to change clips, he wants to know. Oh, yeah, I go. He shakes his head. I turn over his dad's 9mm, which looks like something a secret agent would use. This clip is heavier than a rock that size. Flake's looking at it, too. We both just look at it for a few minutes. I'm still thinking about changing clips. Think we're really going to do this, I go? Flake shrugs. He's still looking at the pistol. We hear some kids ride by on bikes, but we can't tell who they are. Let's do this later, he says. Okay, I go. We put everything back in their cases. At first, the snaps on the outside of the big one won't close, but finally we get it. I push it into the closet while Flake puts the ammo away. When he gets back, we fold up all the newspaper and look around to see if we missed anything. What do you want to do now, Flake finally goes. I'm as depressed as he is. Who knows, I go. He takes the newspaper under his arm and leaves. I can hear him in the kitchen. When I get in there, he's sitting at the table crying. We are such pussies, he goes. 
I sit down across from him, but there's nothing to say. He sniffs and rubs his face, then cleans his hand and nose on a napkin from the napkin holder. Want to play mosh volleyball, I go. No, he goes. Want to throw rocks, I go. Sometimes we throw little rocks at cars from a sand and gravel lot where we can get a running start if we get chased. No, he goes. So what do you want to do, I go. He puts his head on the table and leaves it there for a few minutes. All right, let's throw rocks, he goes. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's such an amazing passage. We're going to talk to Danielle Evans later in the show about political advocacy that some of the young students who survived that shooting at, in, at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School are involved in. It's a very real and positive phenomenon. But one of the things that when I was rereading your book, you know, it's hard not to be reminded of the theater of cruelty and bullying that high school and middle school can be. That's also a real phenomenon. I have two sons. You know, I worry about them getting picked on, getting on the wrong side of the majority culture every day. You know, Mm -hmm. and to me, that perspective, the perspective of your novel is, is one of the things that's not being discussed. I mean, nobody means to excuse the shooter. Your novel doesn't, but in the project, it is the project of serious fiction to ask the uncomfortable question, you know, like, what is life really like for a kid like that? How do people at our schools treat their outcasts? Yeah, you know, we all we all say we know that it's hard being an adolescent, but we forget that one of the you know fundamental aspects of adolescence is the way adolescents tend to think apocalyptically. You know, I mean, oh, everything, yes. everything is the end of the world, you know, and. When a parent says, oh, you know, you're, you, don't worry, this is going to pass, part of what a parent is suggesting to the adolescent is, so I don't understand the way you operate at all. And when you think like that, when you think apocalyptically, extreme solutions seem like the most logical ones, you know, and they also provide a way of expressing to the world that at least you had some agency, you know, that at least you should have been taken seriously at some point. And even in a good school, it's hard to track kids who might be in trouble and at risk since everybody's feeling so much so often and intensities, you know, come and go like weather patterns, you know? The intensity of children is one of the things that's so, I mean, I don't know if it's different. I mean, I have two boys, so I don't really know that much about young girls, but, you know, my son, if he misses a math problem, he'll say, I'm never going to go to college. I've been terrible at math my whole life, you know, and he runs upstairs and slams the door, you know? Yeah. It's just, you know, it's like his, his brain doesn't, isn't have a restraint mechanism sometimes. Exactly. And, you know, as a parent, you, don't, you know, you say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't want to make more out of the trouble, out of the problem than necessary. And you also don't want to uh, ignore the intensities. But you are aware that, you know, these things come and go very, very quickly. <clears throat> and it's very hard to get a fix on which ones seem uh, like things the kids can't deal with at all. You know, and I, I often think about the tiny, tiny events during their days that steer kids toward or away from disaster in ways that, you know, we as parents just never know, you know, just these little, little things. I was about to say, yeah. I mean, the things that um, I think that we don't know, I mean, I, I don't think that my parents listen to the podcast, but I think we might be about to find out. Um, <laughs> I was, I was bullied. I was bullied extensively in middle school and I went to school for many years with the, the person who edited my first novel actually choose to sit next to me on the bus. So she's probably one of the few people who remembers this, but oh. I sat next to her on the bus and then this girl who was two years older than me started bullying me. And she would get off at my bus stop and follow me home, sort of threatening the whole way to kick my ass. And 
she did this for several weeks. And the thing that actually stopped it was another kid mm-hmm. who sort of like put herself bodily in the way of it. But I never told my parents about it. Um, and I just think that there must be so many situations like that where it's it's humiliating Absolutely. right, to, to admit that that's happened to you. And I knew so many kids in my, I mean, again, I went to a really crappy and, and, and scary in some ways, uh, middle school, junior high. And <clears throat> I knew so many kids who simply brought weapons in and brandished them and, and would end problems that way. Like they would take out their mom's steak knife and they would say, you know, don't mess with me anymore. And either the kids would, you know, uh, jeer at them or the kids would go, that guy's crazy. Leave him alone, you know. And the par- and the parents and teachers would never even know. You just put it back in your nap. Yeah. You know, that's just, this was way before metal detectors or anything like that. And then you'd come home and put the steak knife back in the in the drawer, you know. Oh, just, yeah, these sort of like <laughs> funny internal systems of justice that kids have on their own that adults never know about. I mean, it remains yeah. one of the most powerful memories of my life is is the watching the social uh, economy of my class coalesce around excluding one particular kid, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and he was excluded for reasons that were completely insane. I, I think we called him a greaser, like we were in the 50s or something like that. <laughs> You know, he was he had dark hair, you know, and but and so but it, what I what I learned from that was that human groups will find somebody to exclude if they don't naturally have someone to exclude right. because it's the right. way that groups are created. It can just be um, the, the overwhelming reality of that kid's experience. You know? So, Jim, you're famous for doing these incredible amounts of research to prepare your short stories. And you went back into the sort of your own history for this. Famous but... and sweet of you, Sergey. Right now, there's a lot of people listening going, he is? He's famous. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, are you, every time we told we told people we told people you were going to be on, and they were like, "Oh my God, ask him about the research." <laughs> um, so you traveled to the rainforest for Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, and you you talked a little bit about your own history for this. And did you do other things to research Project X? Columbine yeah, is referenced in the book. Yeah. I did a little research on the Columbine shooters, but given that this was not supposed to be a story about them, most of my research had to do with schools. So, you know, I didn't want it to be – because it was um, uh, so much uh, based on autobiographical stuff, I didn't want it to be a historical novel. So one of the things I wanted to make sure was that schools were every bit as crappy and alienating as I remembered them being. And so – I spent a week in a, a public middle school in Massachusetts and a week in a private middle school in L.A., and I was both relieved and dismayed to discover that things were every bit as bad as I remembered. So, oh, but this school in Florida was supposed to have been a pretty good school, right? I mean, Brow- it's in Broward County. Am I- no, that's because as the school get a little better, then the outsiders feel even more alienated and even more outside, right? I mean, they're the ones who, uh, they're, they're like, everybody else seems to be doing great, right? And so then you create an even bigger problem in some ways. So when you went and embedded yourself in those schools, what did you tell them you were doing? Did well, you... The hilarious thing was I've forgotten how oblivious uh, middle schoolers can be to adults almost immediately. So I would sit in the back of the room and I was saying, I'm, you know, I'm working on a novel about middle school. And, and for about, oh, I don't know, uh, five minutes, the kids were completely self-conscious and aware I was there. And then at the six minute mark, you know, they started going, you know, selling each other drugs again, you know, while I'm sitting behind. Them. Oh, my God. <laughs> They just sort of like, oh, yeah, the adult disappeared, you know, so that I, I was just able to witness astonishing stuff, you know. 
it's one of the things that always surprised me. Just you know, I, I, I'm interested that you went back to the schools because one of the things that that never gets discussed when a school shooting like this happens. We talk about gun control, as we should talk about the Republicans will talk about mental illness or they'll talk about some, you know, law enforcement or wanting to arm teachers, which seems completely insane. Uh, But they will never talk about like funding education. Right. Like maybe making schools better, (laughs) having more teachers. I don't know. Why does that never get discussed? Well, the Republican Party has long since figured out uh, 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 a more polite version of what Trump um, crowed after the Nevada primaries, which is I love less educated people. Um, so as as higher education and education in general has made people a little bit more aware critically and a little bit more skeptical, it's made them openly hostile to what the Republicans are selling. So the Republicans are smart in some ways um, in sort of saying, well, we don't need more educated people. We need less educated people. I just want to emphasize for me and for readers how moving the the novel is, um, how much I wanted Edwin Hanratty to turn away from his path and how convincing and funny and sort of terrifyingly human he is as a character. He has these kind of exquisitely redemptive moments. There's one particular one that maybe you could talk about, like where he like goes out one day just walking around. He takes his, his little brother's Nerf, new Nerf fo- football with him and runs mm-hmm. into this father and son who like, are jerks to him. It's it's just one of those things where like everything's going to go bad for Hanratty no matter what <laughs> happens. This father and son like steal his brother's football, and then he gets home and he feels so bad about it, and and that he has to go and buy his his little brother another football. I mean, how did you decide to work in those parts of his personality into the characterization? You know, the uh, people who like myself uh, used to imagine we were very cynical and pessimistic. We'd always have these little jolts, uh, and I remember experiencing them vividly when you'd feel the world or adults have let you down again, and you realize what a closet idealist you really are. Um, and I remember uh, one time uh, throwing a ball around and, and being willing to throw around with a little boy I didn't know and his father, and the little boy clearly liked the ball, and the father just announced, Well, it's our ball. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking, seriously, you're an adult and you're going to just steal my ball. And and it, it coming home to me more powerfully than usual that I, I really did have this sense that people had a benevolence inside them. And then every so often uh, I got um, reminded that that's not always the case. And so that sense of the, the poignancy of both um, wanting to be a better human being, you know, that gap between. Uh, who we would like to be and who we feel ourselves to be seems to me what powers a huge amount of the literature I'm interested in. Uh, um, I was just going to ask what it was like to publish this novel because the reviews, when I look back at them now, were good, but they always paired the novel with Vernon God Little because Vernon God Little had won a prize the year before. And I wonder if there were people who resisted the idea of writing from the point of view of a school shooter and much less sympathizing with him. Oh, sure. I mean, there's always that kind of reader who says, I want to read about people that I admire who I secretly believe are similar to myself. Um, But if the point of literature is to expand the capacity of our empathetic imagination, I do think you have to at least give that project of attempting to understand the shot. You know, I have a a poet friend, uh, Ed Hirsch, who... I was at a reading of mine once, and he said, um, you know, at the end of my poetry readings, I I try to always read at least one poem that will make people want to come up and hug me. And then he, wa- he paused and he said, you, you kind of do the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, I mean, you know, we did talk about this before the episode about we're not going to use the shooter's name while t- talking about this. And, I, 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 you know, look, most of the discussion is going to be about how terrible this person was. You know, I mean, I just was looking mm-hmm. at a CNN video where the, this tagline neighbor says shooter was pure evil, you know. <laughs> um, and, but, Isn't that reassuring to know that he was pure evil? It, there is this, you know, it, it is. It, it, there is this process that goes on, where these people have to be made something other than human, right? In order to, to I don't know why. I mean, maybe you can theorize well, as to why. Don't you think it's so? It's not our fault for for dehumanizing them and putting them in that position of loneliness. Yeah, I mean, not also- to say that it's. And also we get separated from them, right? I mean, we don't have to worry about the kids we know who are human because this was pure evil. This was a dehumanized figure, you know, and and this is somebody that everybody should have spotted. So, again, what a, there's not that much to worry about. We just need to be better at spotting pure evil when we when it pops up, you know. Yeah, it's my my friend Catherine Nichols, who's a terrific essayist, wrote this piece recently about um, sort of what it means politically to talk about good guys and bad guys, and sort of how that relates to the nation state, and sort of the way that it it just makes it it makes it possible to kind of yeah to once you have this enemy, you can just eliminate them, and right. how stories were not always that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this, um, this is and, the thing that uh, that we're not saying that I'm going to say right. now, in 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 the sense that make people mad at me, but. We have these uh, young students who have become like national icons of, of perfectness uh, right. who are who are advocating for gun control, which I believe in and which I do think they're doing a great job and they've become wonderful. And, and that is great. And yet we have already testimony. Every kid who's, who's uh, interviewed about the shooter at Parkland said, oh, he was bullied. Oh, nobody wanted to hang with him. Oh, so there are people in that school who treated this person terribly. Right. But, you know, it, it, there's also this this uh, astonishingly complicated, uh, vicious circle that begins, right? Because once the kid gets treated viciously or, or terribly, or even just um, in, in ways that, as you're saying, almost any group will do it, right? You sort of go, well, we're all going to the movies. We didn't think to ask him. And he takes it the wrong way. Now he's alienating them. And they're like, well, who needs him? And suddenly you're in this cycle where... People who are not bad people at all are just sort of going, well, it's not my responsibility to make sure he's fitting in, you know, right. and also he's weird and also he's aggressive and also he's so to heck with him. And suddenly you've got a situation where you've got somebody very scary who's thinking, <clears throat> well, I'm I'm Grendel looking in the meat hall and I'm going to show them. Right. Well, what- so how do you balance that with um, like sort of right in some of these cases? And they're they're, of course, not all the same, like some people who have perpetrated atrocities with um, with automatic weapons have been young men who have said, well, women ignored me. Right. Like, so right. when I think about this, I can think of an, an instance that I'm not particularly proud of where um, a guy who I think just sort of wanted to be friends with a group of people I was friends with. Um, like, I don't think I did a great job of including him. And right. yet at the same time, I was also trying to navigate issues of learning how to set up and maintain my own boundaries. Like, I think I have a tendency to just to like, I think like, right. This is, it's also a gendered problem to sort of be like, um, like I would end up doing a lot of things I didn't want to do and was trying to sure. teach myself how to not do that. So where's the line between that? 
Yeah, and and we're also forgetting that you know adolescents are not uh, trained therapists, and they're not also <laughs> incredibly centered you know spiritual figures who can say we have to reach out to the least of our brethren. You know, I mean, they are about uh, forming groups. They are about uh, panicking that they might be left out of a group, and they are about being relieved that when they see an outcast, at least they're not that outcast. You oh, know, I mean, right. I totally had that. That's if I can think of one thing that I know for sure that I did that was morally wrong, and I was aware that I was doing it and, and I knew it was wrong when I did it was that I never helped that kid who my my class sure. uh, ostracized because I was and so to, glad not to be him yeah and to be fair to you there would have been a social cost to helping him right oh yeah I mean Jesus yeah. would have helped him and Gandhi would have helped him but I'm not sure Jim or Wit would have helped him. <laughs> so if the kids aren't supposed to be fixing you know what, what 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 can we reasonably say I guess you've already said like one thing would be really nice as if People did not have access to automatic uh, assault rifles. You know that and, would be. And you really, you know, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to uh, understate that, right? Because, like, that's the, the number kid, one thing. Like, if you want to learn one thing, one. just this is it. You know. Yeah, because you know it's a little bit like saying, uh, there. Uh, how do we get rid of alienated kids who want to lash out at uh, their neighborhood? It, you know, you're never going to entirely eliminate that, but it would be nice if those kids couldn't get access to tactical nuclear weapons. You know, that would be a good idea because if they get a tactical nuclear weapon, they're going to consider setting it off. Do we, uh, I mentioned school funding. I mean, do we, is, is there anything else that can be practically thought of, you know, that isn't being talked about that you guys, you guys think about? You know, there's a way in which, um, especially with underfunded public schools, which as you were pointing out, are getting more and more underfunded, they're processing so many kids and the teachers are so beleaguered that they're really in some ways turning into holding pens. Um, and a lot of these kids know this um, and they are not uh, happy about that either. And the hypocrisy of, you know, we're here to help everyone um, become president of the United States on the one hand and, and we're tracking people and we know um, that we're not even going to bother to educate you on the other uh, is not something that's lost on these kids. Um, and so that is something, you know, as you were saying before, um, I, I am one of those people who believes that you're probably better off educated than uneducated. Uh, so we can do a little better job of educating. Because remember, education is also about empathy and empathy in some ways will stop you from shooting somebody. You know, we have increasingly made higher education more and more expensive. The reason people go to high school in part is, or at least, you know, they're told is to, so that they can go to college because college yeah. makes you better employable. I mean, there was a financial element also to what happened in Parkland. You know, the the, the shooter's family had lost their home recently. Um, there's the kind of like doom, right, of the future. And I wonder if when people look at the, the possibility of going to college and it seems it's so much more expensive than it used to be. It didn't used to have to be that way, you know, that, that people begin to, to sort of despair of, of the normal progress forward. Does that make any sense to you guys? It, it really does. And I think, um, you know, we, we, we forget that it, it changes America when you go from a place where <clears throat> the, 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 the blithe assumption is that you'll do better than your parents did to a place where the, the sort of um, despairing assumption is that you you may not get a job or you're, you're not going to do nearly as well as your parents did. And that that's a very different worldview. When you were describing your son running up the stairs and saying, you know, I'm never going to go to college now that I've missed this one math problem. And there's also a set of parents who underline that, um, right? Like as opposed to the, the parent who sits down is sort of like, you're going to be fine. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. 
and teachers, um, right? There are parents and teachers and just sort of communities doing that. Like we want to be known as the high achieving community. We want to be, um, we, we want to send you to the best possible place. So you can't miss anything. I mean, I remember, um, just, yeah, the, I mean, the, uh, your emotional dial is turned to 11 and you're told that you have to get into school or the rest of your life is ruined. And, um, it just seems kind of like, yeah, it's a, it's a pressure cooker. Like, I mean, would it, would adults do so much better in that situation? I'm not sure that we would. Yeah. I'm not sure either. And you know, um, that, that, that helicopter parent thing that, that says everybody is going to be, um, uh, nurtured to the nth degree, um, creates not only an unbearable amount of pressure for the, the object of the nurturance, cause you know, if I get into Wesleyan and not Harvard, dad's going to be sad kind of thing. Uh, but also imagine those kids at the bottom of that pecking order, you know, who are saying, well, uh, nobody's nurturing me, you know. So there was this sense in, in 2004 that the issue of school shootings was kind of played out. That's the way it felt like to me when I was reading some of the reviews of Project X. You know, the, the New York Times review called it the latest contribution to the mini canon of works <laughs> devoted to understanding the massacre, you know. And I thought, wait a minute, man. Did people simply seem not to understand at that time that we were at the beginning of a problem rather than the end. Well, one of the more shameful aspects of our culture is the extent to which, you know, whether it's out of weariness or the sense that we just can't change it, we've accommodated this kind of slaughter um, as just the way things have to be. And I think that was reflected in the in the reviews, you know, oh, another novel about kids shooting each other. And, you know, and I was sort of like, I'm sorry, next time I'll write about upscale reviewers feeling melancholy. How's that? You know? <laughs> it was like, it was like there was aesthetically boring, you know? Yeah, right. Oh, another one of these, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I don't know. Does it seem different? This I wanted to ask you. You know, having thought about Columbine, you, uh, how different does the atmosphere around this particular massacre feel compared to 1999 or 2004? Well, Danielle will probably talk about this too. But one of the things that's um, uh, a cause for optimism, which usually you don't have a cause for around this is, you know, the kids are a completely different constituency in some ways than the adults. You know, everybody was despairing after Sandy Hook because we thought, oh, my God, if the mothers can't, you know, mothers of small children who've been killed, if they can't generate sympathy, who will? But one thing we forgot was that the mothers, when they were attacked by the right wing, which was kind of stunning, were so appalled that they just all retreated. And, you know, as, as well you might. But the high school kids, when they're attacked, uh, they they come right back at you. Um, and in fact, one of the great things, one of the causes for real optimism for me is the right wing trolls that come at the high school kids um, make sure that the high school kids won't stop doing this because that, that pisses them off all over again. Um, so the one thing that the right had going for it, I think, which was that they could hope that the high school kids at some point that their anger would flag they keep stirring it up again by attacking the kids. So, And the kids understand this new media world better than the right wing does. Oh, for sure. And like, did you see, I think it was my favorite line. I might actually see if I can find it. Um, David Hogg, who is the young journalist who had reviewed, um, or sorry, who had interviewed some of his classmates while they were while they were waiting to see what would happen while the shooting was going on. Um he his response to this was sort of, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry that this is what you have so little faith in our country. We're going to outlive you. And I thought <laughs> this line is so fantastic. That is I just so wanted, great. 
I want to, you know, put it above my mirror, above my work desk. We're going to outlive you. Um, uh, I love the, I love both the, uh, the implacable realism of it and the aggression, right? Uh, yeah. It has that quality of will dance on your grave. <laughs> exactly. And I think it's so, it's so easy to cheer for them. Yeah. Um, they're so, um, they're so, they have such good consciousness and they're so, and they've also, I think, done a really interesting thing of, um, you know, crediting the people who have been activists before them, uh-huh. um, which I, which I admire very much too. Um, they're, they're good at fielding this kind of aggression on the fly too. Like I love the one kid who said, uh, somebody said to him, oh, he's just an actor. He's not even a real kid. And the kid said something like, well, if they'd seen me in the production of Fiddler on the Roof, they would know I'm no actor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're really, um, they're really kind of incredible. Yeah. Well, so see, um, we're, ending, we're ending on an optimistic note. Isn't that great? <laughs> we had to find a way. We did um, it. I think this is, I think, one of my big questions, right? Like, um, there's this urge to talk about things in an optimistic tone. And I wonder, you know, there are also writers who resist that, like ta Coates or, or other folks like um, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who will sort of just be like, optimism is not my job. And I wonder <laughs> if just on a, <laughs> if I can sneak one last question in there, how much do you think optimism is our job? Well, that's a good question. I think your job is to be um, as honest as you can about the your worldview. And in, in my case, you know, even though I'm, I'm a, a catastrophist, I have a, a good friend, Elizabeth Colbert, who says that uh, whenever she wants to feel better about her own worldview, she comes over and talks to me. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, I, I do think of myself as an optimist in that I, I, I do think that um, there's a that we can aspire to that gap I was talking about between who we want to be and who we are. And I don't think it's a small thing to say that we know who it is we should be and we and we aspire to that periodically. And and some people achieve it, you know, and, and some of us achieve it part of the time. And that doesn't seem to me like a, a, a dark or a pessimistic view at all, you know. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the Fiction Nonfiction podcast. What a treat for us. We recommend readers go check out Project X as well as the rest of Jim's work. There's Love and Hydrogen, a short story collection that was released the same year as Project X. He has a new collection out, The World to Come, which was published in 2017. All of which would suggest, as this conversation might have, that they make fine holiday gifts. (laughs) (laughs) Jim, thanks so much for being here. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. And now we're so pleased to bring on Danielle Evans, author of the brilliant short story collection, Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self. Danielle Evans is the winner of the 2011 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize and a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree. Her stories have appeared in the Paris Review, A Public Space, and Best American Short Stories. She currently teaches in the MFA program at the University of Madison, Wisconsin, and she will start at the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University in the fall. Danielle, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And Danielle is an old friend. Especially delighted to have her with us. Our regular listeners might remember that we discussed her story, Virgins, in an earlier episode of the show, one of our most listened to episodes, the one we did on the Weinstein allegations. And on that episode, you might recall, we talked about the narrator of her short story, Virgins, and the narrator's friend. And the two of them are smart and brave, but also naive. Danielle, you're known for writing about smart young black women wrestling with coming of age in a society that consistently underestimates them. So we wanted to bring you on because there's been a lot of chatter since the Parkland shootings about the student activists who are going to save us all. No pressure, student activists. 
Um, but they're kind of amazing, these Parkland kids, outspoken and, yes, certainly smarter than a lot of the adults they're arguing with. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm tremendously impressed with these students in part because of their ability to sort of anticipate the ways that they'll be dismissed and misrepresented and, and try to get ahead of those, um, the connections that they're able to make and the arguments they've been able to make. But I also, I mean, I I wonder about framing the conversation in terms of smarter than in that. I, I think some of the people that, that the students are arguing with are very smart. They just have very particular agendas. Um, and so they look dumb because like they can't openly express those agendas. And that's why when you have a press conference where you get to just sort of ask a question from a place of not having something to hide, it is a way to win an argument. But I think that I'm worried about framing this in terms of the adults don't know what they're doing. Like, I think a lot of people kind of know what they're doing and what they're positing is if you're making an argument that's based in freedom, that is actually an argument for a police state, right? Like instead of taking away anyone's guns, <laughs> right. we should like preemptively arrest people who might worry us. And we should like have children go to school with guns where we already have states of children being like over-disciplined and, and over-scrutinized in certain communities that look less like Parkland, right? Like, those people are not stupid. They have they have a plan. <laughs> and I think that the, the Parkland kids have often been smart enough to anticipate that. So it's not that they're they're willing to sort of jump on board with a protect us but not other people plan. But I, I don't I don't know that the problem is that the people they're arguing with are dumb. They're just smart assholes. So. <laughs> In watching the the Parkland students, they're learning how these systems work. And I think you're right, staying ahead of them a little bit. Um, and your characters are almost always at least I would I would I consider them really smart, but also surrounded by, as you're sort of alluding to, adults who have made decisions that are bad for them, whether it's out of, um, whether out of just sort of Machiavellian interests or or something else, um, and adults who also just don't really listen to them. And we were thinking about smart child narrators, and, and my sort of smart-ass response to Whitney was, you mean like all child narrators? And then I was wondering <laughs> if that was true. Like, do does a child narrator have to be smart to be interesting um, and smarter than the adults around them? Like, is that kind of vision necessary? And when you think about writing credible young narrators, um, how do you how do you do that? Like narrators who are trying to seize grown up power, like who are at this fulcrum of adulthood. Yeah. So I have maybe two competing thoughts on that. And I should start by saying, like, I tried to make a list when I was preparing for this conversation, and I realized, which will come as no surprise to Siggy, that I'm, like, kind of a grumpy reader. So <laughs> I I kept trying to cope with, like, child protagonists that I like, and, like, I hate so many child protagonists because they're precocious, because I feel like it's a way of a writer trying to have access to, like, the plot possibilities of childhood right. without having to, like, inhabit a voice. Yeah. And so, like, I, I there are a lot of, like famous child narrators who are I find like cloying and difficult um, examples I think yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be positive and not negative okay. <laughs> I'm gonna not get in trouble this early in the podcast maybe later um, but so I, I was thinking of the child narrators that I do really like and a lot of them are supported by the weight of a retrospective voice like they're about and some so which which makes in some way the the, the tension of the text about whatever's happening, but also about the difference between childhood and adulthood, which is about things, understanding that has been gained, but also about things that have been lost. So like one of my favorite child narrators, if you can count it, is the narrator in Edward P. Jones's The First Day, which starts with this sort of brief aside um, on an otherwise unremarkable September day, long before I learned to be ashamed of my mother. 
and that, that, that the rest of the story is in the present tense but that aside that it begins with this kind of hovering over the whole story um about the space that's about to be lost and so there, there's just such striking sharp imagery in that story like there's a the mother is a is a single mother we she doesn't quite know what's going it's the first day of school and she doesn't quite understand all the things about registration and we learn some things about why that is in the space of the story um and there's some sense that the child doesn't quite understand at the time that that her mother doesn't understand how registration works that her mother is not literate like these are things that are just sort of lost in the space of the day but they're hanging in the story as the cost of the education that the mother's helping the child to get but there's this sort of really lovely moment right at the beginning of the story um where there's a dab of gardenia perfume the, the mother has this bottle that's the last thing the child's father gave her before disappearing and the child says, I couldn't smell it, but I knew that it was there. And I think of that as being the sort of space that's relevant to thinking about childhood and, and, and youth activism, right? That like, we're not sure there's any perfume in that bottle. There might be. We're not sure the mother actually put any on. Um, but that belief that like, the beautiful protective thing is there and also the ability to kind of function in the world where like it might be empty like that's the space I think we often ask adolescent narrators to add to right. that's the transition right. we're asking them to make. And I, I think that so many stories that are coming of age stories are actually in some ways about the end of childhood insofar as the end of childhood is the understanding that some things are irreversible. Right. And like, sometimes that's a, that's not a, the shape of a huge trauma. It's just the understanding that like this thing that happened will always have happened, or I will always be the person that did this or, or the person that experienced this. And sometimes it is a major trauma, like, like these kids at Parkland have gone through that, sort of divided their lives into a before and after without um, without necessarily giving them the space to choose that. And so I think that they've chosen to respond to that in this sort of really moving way with this sort of activism that's aimed at protecting other people is amazing. But I also think that like as, as adults, it's important to remember that that was triggered by trauma and that it's still like a new thing that they're going to have to learn to live with forever. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think makes the position of the, when it's done properly, you know, adolescent narrator powerful and that people have talked about in this case also is that, is that you know, you, you still have a capacity for outrage. Um, and you're also discovering for the first time maybe that the adults that you thought were powerful are actually flawed human beings. Uh you know, I, I think of like the Wolf Brothers, you know, I mean, the, you can think it's, it's hard to Tobias and Jeffrey Wolf writing about their parents who split up and like inspired the Duke of Deception and, you know, um, uh, this boy's life. Uh, you know, they were those books are both about discovering that the adults are screwing up in a way that the children didn't expect, you know, and in a way yeah. the, the Parkland students are discovering that we have been screwing up for a long time in a way that <laughs> they did not expect, you know? I, I mean, I, I, one of the things that's been striking for me is thinking about how quickly the world that they grew up in became different than the world that we grew up in. I mean, so many of these kids grew up with like active shooter drills, which is still yeah. like, as a person who didn't have that when I was in school and, and doesn't have kids, like watching my friends who are parents describe kind of trying to explain to a second grader what the drill is for or realizing their, their, their small child understands what the drill is for. It's in some ways a different reality. It's, an, it's, it's a thing that I hadn't processed the sort of weight of growing up with until hearing kids articulate what it felt like to grow up with that. 
my son is on the student council and he is planning a walkout. You know, that was their that was their next meeting. You know, what are they, when are they going to do their walkout? Is it going to be, you know, now or later? Uh, I can't believe that that, uh, you know, that wasn't something that I was doing in seventh grade. We have a long tradition of student activism. And, and, and even in recent years, like a lot of what, what, what I think is impressive about the Parkland students is that people have tried to kind of set them against other student action movements. And they said, no, like we took a lot of inspiration for Black Lives Matter, right? Like we right. we understand, like just yesterday I was seeing online that they, they were meeting with kids from Chicago, right? Because the idea is that like, it's not that gun violence is like only appalling when it happens in a place where we don't expect it, right? It's that there are there are children we've treated as though they are expendable in various structural ways. Um, and their understanding that like, they don't want to be used against those kids is also profoundly important. And I think a good sign that like, this isn't an isolated moment, but like a thing that can be connected to all of the sort of years of activism they're building on um, and hopefully maintaining. I remember getting a, a call a few years ago or not a call, a tweet, a direct message. Um, no one uses phones anymore. Right. Um, from a, <laughs> A student um, at, at my alma mater who had found in the archives, like an editorial I'd written when I was a student there, and it, when it was about this sort of thing that there had been complaints about for years and years, but they were complaining about the thing, and they were being told that like this conversation was new to the administrators because nobody had ever complained about it before, and they were trying to figure out what to do, and so it just it, I, I feel like that erasure of history is also part of the issue, right? That sort of erasure of we expect student movements to, to to end because we expect students to graduate or grow up or move on in some way. And then where are the archives, right? Where is the person to say when you the 10th student comes with the same complaint to the same administrator, actually we've had this conversation before and you promised X, Y, Z and that didn't change. And so in some ways, in some ways the publicity of the internet is like we think archives are forever and then they have ways of disappearing because we're not actively archiving them. So I think that, that that collective memory and documentation and responsibility is still important. But on the, on the other hand, I think one of the things about sort of how much documentation happens in this moment because of all the sort of platforms we have is that it's harder to erase that sort of connection and building and it's harder to sort of deny that these movements have roots that can hopefully allow them to, to be sustainable as these children or teenagers grow into adults. That's interesting to think about with relation to students, like the way that, yeah, I mean, I think that people will often excuse, um, yeah, a lack of movement with, oh, well, the, the students have no institutional memory. The students don't know what happened before. And in fact, that possibility is always there. Um, we talked about virgins on that earlier episode, and I have sometimes taught to my introductory undergraduates, your story snakes. But then actually when I was thinking about this issue, the story that came to mind was actually Robert E. Lee is dead in part because of, um, I mean, it portrays a school, portrays students who are coming from different places. Um, one of the things that comes up in this story repeatedly sort of the importance of the opinion of a specific adult. Um, the adults control things and the system is set up to be unfair and the kids have to learn how to navigate the adult systems. And they come up with, different ways to do that. And then the kids in some ways end up repeating the same patterns in other ways, break them. But also, I mean, the kids suffered different consequences. Um, and you were talking a little bit about um, how the Parkland kids have, you know, allied themselves with um, kids in different situations uh, with different histories in them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that story and, and how you came to write it and to begin with these two students who come from different places. Yeah, I mean, I think I was I was trying to push 
back, right, against this narrative that, like, there are good kids and bad kids and we can sort of, A, tell who they are and, B, like, the solution is just to, like, keep the good kids away from the bad kids, right? Um, which I think is something that, that that is very much about our narrative of, like, children of color in this country, right? That, like, if we could just rescue the few good ones to keep them from the bad apples, like, if we could get them away from everything that, that, that raised them and made them who they are. In the bluest eye, where there are two narrators and the, yeah. the child narrator is retrospective, right? Again, that sort of distance. But there is a real awareness of the way that the world is stacked against you. Um, and that, I think, is sometimes... Sometimes the thing that gets treated like we're writing precocious child narrators, when we're writing child narrators who are from marginalized backgrounds because of class or sexuality or race or any kind of status that diminishes them. And really, it's not precocity. It's like you have to learn pretty quick if you're a kid, like that people don't see you as a child or treat you as a child or that you are mm-hmm. part of a community that is going to be treated differently. Like that is kind of collective knowledge that gets passed on earlier. If it's something you have to think about. Right. Childhood um, is a construct that you're not going to get to be part of. Yeah. So, and I think now I've like gotten a little away from the topic, which was, um, but, but I think I was, I was, I was thinking of how like angry that narrator is, right. Her reaction to Shirley Temple versus Pakola's reaction to Shirley Temple because it's very clear, like, they're both being taught to sort of emulate a thing that that is not possible. And the, the understanding that, like, those coming-of-age goals that are being sold to them are not possible for them um, doesn't make them not children. It doesn't make her understanding of the situation at the time not childlike, but it colors her perspective of childhood and her memory of that period um, of her life. And so I guess I'm saying all to say that I, um, I think... There's a way that children learn to navigate adult systems while still being children. And I and I think that it's important as adult people in the world and readers to like both credit them and help them. And I'm thinking I've been thinking about this because I, I feel like as an adult person who tries to be vocal about things in, in when I can, I think about like why I've backed away from talking as much about gun control. And partly it was just sort of, it felt so hopeless, right? It felt like after Newton, if we were going to let like middle-class children be murdered in their elementary school and not as a culture kind of step back and be willing to go after the gun lobby and the manufacturers, like nothing was going to give. And I did feel, I think, profoundly hopeless about the possibility of change for a long time. And I think I also felt like the older I got, the more complicated the issue got. Not to say that it wasn't, that there weren't some sort of obvious things I wanted to ask for, but I realized the ways in which that language might be used against people. Um, I've got a a friend I went to college with, Raina Gossett, came to give a talk at UW-Madison a few years ago and said, the state will find a way to repackage everything you love as a prison. Like, you ask for something, and the state will give it back to you as a prison. <laughs> and I think about that a lot. And I think about that, you know, when I think of what I want is, is sort of a gun control that goes after sales and manufacturing, and, and I'm worried about providing the language that then allows it to be a sort of culture of over-policing communities that are already over-policed. Um, yeah. And yeah. so I've been sort of tangled up in that language for a long time and, and trying to figure out exactly what it is I mean to ask for. And so I think for me, some, some of this sort of urgency 
of, of listening to the Parkland kids has been about remembering my own responsibility to them as a person who kind of did almost accept, okay, well, I just live in a country where like mass shootings are a thing now and no one wants to do anything about that. But like that sort of impetus to do something about that, um, to sort of find the responsible language to not let this be co-opted into like, we'll just arm the teachers and like militarize all of our schools. Um, that, that, that is actually a thing that I, that I owe to people that I have a responsibility to. I mean, I'd given up on the discussion too. I'm, I, 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 you know, I, I definitely, in the sense that, I, you know, I remember writing outraged things, uh, and 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 then, you know, with each shooting, feeling like, well, I already made this argument; it's not going to change anything. Uh, I give up. I'm going to move on and think about other stuff. And so I, I, I definitely am, uh, have had that same feeling. So. And now, given this conversation, and then there's all this alt-right online fake news and chatter accusing the kids of being actors, I was thinking of Robert E. Lee is Dead, your story, and how the characters kind of perform good and bad or resist those categories, and how adults expect certain things of certain people, as you've alluded to. Um, And I wonder if you could set the story up for us and read a little bit from it. Yeah, so this story is... um about two teenage girls um, who live in a, in a neighborhood that has kind of quickly demographically changed um, because of largely white flight as a response to kind of increasing immigration to the um, area. And so they're in this school that is very racially divided in kind of the old South turning into the new South um, and, you know, consider air quotes around both old and new in, in, in those descriptions. Um, and so they are cheerleaders and their schools have an annual football rival rivalry game with their biggest rival in the district, um, which there's this assumption that they're invested in. And so they have, um, instead of participating in the usual week of shenanigans in which both schools kind of vandalize each other, they decided to vandalize their own school in order to get the other school in trouble so that the school would have to give them money for their prom um, because that school has more money than they do. um, This is kind of right after their vandalism adventure. We lost the football game. A couple of the Lakewood kids seemed sad about this. They genuinely wanted that sword, probably to cut our heads off with Jason said. On our part, the loss was overshadowed by the enthusiastic response to the news that Stonewall Jackson was going to have to reschedule their prom. We knew they'd get the money back, but it was a victory nonetheless. The school held an assembly to address the vandalism. The senior class advisor chided Jackson for not only committing such a childish act, but refusing to take responsibility for it even after the fact. The Jackson football team had claimed over and over again they'd had nothing to do with it, that we'd probably done it ourselves to get them in trouble. Apparently, it didn't occur to anyone to believe them. In the school board's mind, we still had loyalties. Mrs. Peterson gave a long speech about embracing diversity, rather like a wolf giving a speech on embracing sheep, and said it was mystifying that anyone would even make such a charge against us. Gina and I sat straight-faced and said nothing. It had been our experience that white people were very easily mystified. Oh, thanks so much. Oh, this is such a great passage. I, I'm a, I love the story. Um, uh and it makes me think about um, the students who will be walking out on, on, I guess there are multiple possible walkout days coming this spring. Um, you, you know, who's being celebrated for doing it and who isn't, you know, in, 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 these, in these sort of walkouts? Yeah. And I mean, I do think that one of the things that sort of 
is very inspiring about listening to a lot of the sort of students from Parkland talking is that they understand that they've been treated differently and want to kind of share that space and want to find a way to amplify other voices. And that uh-huh. I think is a very good impulse. And I also think, I mean, in general, like the language of the problem with like authoritarian language is partly that like we can see who it comes for first, but it's also that eventually it comes for everybody. Right. So it didn't take very long for the narrative to go from like, Oh, these are good traumatized kids to like, look at all these disrespectful brats. <laughs> We're going to walk out of their schools. Right. Um, like increasingly, I just find that the language of civility is like a fancy word for gaslighting. Right. Um, yeah. This idea that we should all be nice and we should have conversations from a place of kind of respect just masks a lot and insists on masking a lot. Um, and, and so I'm kind of, I, I sort of, I think one of the, the possibilities of adolescent activism is that adolescents can see civility for what it is because it's usually asking them to sort of show respect for an authority figure that has not earned respect. <laughs> um, and so I think this idea that like, these are our schools and this is our future, um, and that is more important than sort of the idea of showing deference to anybody is actually really important and really important to kind of preserve and find a way to kind of bring back into our adult culture where we sort of demonized anger. Um, and so that the minute someone is angry, they're irrational, they're irrational or unreasonable or don't need to be spoken to. Well, like um, Mrs. Peterson, your character, you know, the, the racist guidance counselor, who's the one who gives the speech on diversity, you know, um, and as you describe what it's like a wolf, uh, uh, you know, suggesting that people, I can't remember the exact line, take care of sheep, right? Um, that seems that seems totally apropos to what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it gets back a little to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, she's not a stupid woman. I mean, she's not like yeah. the clan, but she's not a person who like... She knows what she's, she's doing. She's person who thinks like... Um, there are certain people who deserve opportunities and certain people who don't, right? Like she doesn't want those advanced classes to look like the school looks. Um, she has some beliefs that are ignorant that are about like not actually understanding her students' backgrounds, but she has some beliefs that are about who deserves what that she's like structurally enforcing. I really like that in the story. Also, there's that sort of the way what, what the school did when they figured out that they couldn't just redistrict in order to keep it more white. They they figured out they oh, will create a higher achievement wing that'll look like the school Looked like before there was demographic change in the neighborhood. I mean, these are kind of things that happen in Kansas City all the time. Yeah, and then your I mean, narrator I sort of, sort of says, I had made that up, but <laughs> but um, I mean, it's so plausible, right? Like she, your narrator is sort of like, oh, this this section of the school is Lakewood plus me, and then um, Mrs. Peterson says, you know, we want to make sure you keep the right kind of company, and your friend Gina isn't it. Um, right. Like the ways that people are steered away from each other based on perceptions that they don't have anything in common. Um, like the perceptions of like what Gina, for example, is capable of are so um, they're so insidious and quite subtle in the story, which is, I think, one of the most um, things. One of the things that felt like an accurate criticism of the way that educators um, and I and I was thinking about myself rereading the story that, you know, now I'm I'm a teacher. So how do I think about this in relation to my students? And I wonder, like you're you're sort of talking about bringing this back into the like the sense that these these schools belong to these students and that that is actually more important to, than any deference to an authority that hasn't earned respect. So how do we as adults kind of support that in our students? Like, how do you make space for your students to talk about that? And like, what kind of what kind of activism do you hope for from them, but also from us? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that I I feel really lucky to get to see students on a regular basis because it's the, 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 what I see in my classroom is so far from the narrative about students that it's a good reminder um, that we don't live in this world of sort of monstrous demanding millennials. We live in a world of kind of bright, engaged students. And to the extent that like, to the extent that there are shifts I've seen even in like the 10 years since I started teaching, largely they're, they're a product of like what we've done to the educational system and that, you know, we've taught students that the point of education is to like, give back what we exactly what we asked them for in the form that we asked them as we sort of taken power away from high school teachers and given it to tests. And so then they get to college and we're upset with them that they won't be like inventive and imaginative enough that they want step-by-step instructions. <laughs> like it's not their fault. Um, right. and so I think part of what I want is to, to, to encourage again, that kind of wild imagination and risk taking to, to make it possible for them to imagine things that, that haven't happened yet and, and support them in doing so. Um, I mean, I teach in Wisconsin um, where like for a lot of my students, um, they're not growing up in particularly diverse communities. Like college may be like the most diverse room they've been in and that is often still not a super diverse room. <laughs> um, and so I think that like finding, because I, I teach fiction, like, finding ways to expand the sense of what the world is and, and where we where we need to understand ourselves as having common causes and where we need to understand the particularities of our own situations and having the vocabulary to kind of talk about that is important. Um, I think that I want my students to feel like they're entitled to their anger. They have been they have been cheated in a lot of ways. And, and I think that that anger and the expression of that anger is important to that. Um, I also think that I want them to feel like it's okay to not know immediately what to do with that anger. I think that we live in a culture that asks for immediate responses a lot. I think sometimes why artists make questionable activists is that we we're thinking about that empty bottle, right? We're thinking about the moment when we realized it wasn't there. Um, and that's okay. Like we don't, we don't all have to be inspirational. Some of us, some of us get to grieve, right? Um, and I think that, that I, part of what I also want to make it okay for them to, to do is to, is to understand that like some of these cultural shifts are like long game conversations. And so if you don't know, sorry, my cat is just being very difficult right now. I am not wrestling the paper. The cat has decided all the paper should be wrestled. <laughs> so, okay. Thank what's, you. Cat. What's the cat's name? This is Cersei. Hello, Cersei. Um, say hi, Cersei. I feel like students are much, 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 much more frightened than I think they might have used to be. And, you know, like they're frightened about economic terms. So I just had a very long conversation with a young woman who was like, so afraid to get a creative writing degree because she does not know if it's going to get her a job, you know? And so I'm like, what are you studying now? She's like, well, I'm taking economics. And she hates economics, you know? <laughs> but I can tell that she's frightened, you know, to explore even so minor a thing as taking, getting a BA in English or creative writing, you know? Um, you yeah, hear the voice you know, of the parents coming in, the voice of the economy coming in, saying, "You got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this." That's why, in part, the active the, the the students at Parkland seem like maybe they were shocked out of that fear by by this terrible thing that happened to them. 
Well, I also think, I mean, at this point, we've destroyed so many systems that I would, I mean, what I tell my students is like your safe career paths aren't safe either. Like, go look at how much debt, like unemployed law students are in right now. You know, we've destroyed almost every industry that was stable except for like being born rich. So, um, like, I just, I think that in some ways, like, the lack of fear is a kind of growing realization that there's like less to lose. Um, yeah. And then I hope that that transitions back into like rebuilding the structures that we've kind of been consistently disinvesting in, which are all of course related. I mean, the, 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 the part of this, that part of this is very much like making sure that you can't like walk into a store and get a weapon that can kill like hundreds of people. Part of this is also like thinking about, what is going on in our culture that like this is the way that people are acting out, which is partly about our cultural like relationship to guns and violence and partly about like what kind of hope and possibility we've given our our children. So I hope that that fearlessness goes back into like rebuilding and not destroying. Um, but I do think that that, that, that fear is real, that fear of like there, we have not prepared them for this particular world because we keep giving them these narratives of responsibility and investment that are built for like a generation that they they didn't grow up in. Um, the governor and we have taught of- them that education is about like you do what you're told and you get this reward. And so then like we get angry when they want like rubber stamp education, but that's what we turned it into. Yeah. I asked Jim at the end of the segment that we recorded with him, to what extent optimism is our job? Um, and I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit from the point of view of the writing, but also from the point of view of like some of what you were just saying about activism. Hmm. So, like, I I feel like maybe you should have ended with Jim because, like, I have a skeptical <laughs> I have a skeptical view of optimism. I do. Um, in that, I think that often optimism, especially from like adults, especially from people with authority, is a way of either like gaslighting or deciding not to do something. Right? Like, I mean, and I I can think of large and small scale examples of this, but I think I've like. The, the culture of like, oh, it's fine. Everything's going to be fine is often a way of like not engaging what isn't fine yes. and and pointing and making the people who are saying like, this is not okay, feel like they're the problem or they're crazy. Um, and so I think that there's this like, so I, I, I think, I think I thought a lot about like what toxic optimism looks like, like something actually worrisome happens. And then like the institution you work for sends an email out saying like, don't worry, this is not really a thing, but it is a thing. <laughs> like, um, That's or, a new phrase for me. Toxic optimism. I like yeah, that. That's great. <laughs> How many use that? So Maybe that'll I, be the I, title I, of our episode. <laughs> toxic optimism. So don't believe in anything. Daniel Evans said no. Um, so I guess I've been, I've been so focused on like what's frustrating about that sort of, because it's hard to be the jerk who's like, actually like it's not okay and it's hard to like when that sort of position of being concerned has been problematized as like being difficult or being unreasonable to like then occupy that position and so these cultures of like it's gonna be okay it's not a big deal are like actually very alarming to me um but i think that there must be like a non-toxic version of optimism that i that i am trying to push myself to get back to um which i guess is just a belief that things can get better even if they are terrible now. Um, And so I I, I guess that part of what I think of as my job as a writer in that culture is to just document what's, what's, to to remind people that there are things worth saving. Um, 
And so I think the sort of investment in whether it's whether or not your work is coming from a place of optimism, the reminder of like the human cost of all of this in, in some way or what it is that is sort of beautiful and joyful that we want to, to live to see. Um, that is the space of optimism in writing. And sometimes the space of that optimism is like on the page, something is destroyed so that what the reader takes away is a desire not to see it destroyed in it, in, in their own lives. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess I think activist cultures are often not cultures of optimism and artistic cultures are often not cultures of optimism. And I'm fine with that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Danielle. And I hope that I will see you at AWP, at the hotel bar, at different panels and readings. And I'm so looking forward to it as one of the places that I get to find joy by hanging out with you every year. Thank you. I, I said I will find you there. Actually, I have a funny story to tell you, Sugi. Like, I was looking for you on the wrong side of the bar. And like, literally, my life changed because I bumped into somebody else. So we'll talk about it at AWP. Ooh, Ooh I'm interested. <laughs> Danielle, thanks so much for being with us. Before you suffocate your own fool self, everybody. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week's episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. It's been a tough week for news. We're eager to hear your feedback and ideas for how writers can talk about it. And we'll be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction. That's fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar for your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find our previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the LitHub website, lithub.com, where the FNF page is listed under the News tab. We'll put the links to the books and articles we mentioned this week there uh, on the LitHub page and also on our Facebook page at FNFPod or on Twitter. You can find us at FNFTalk. Have a great couple of weeks. The resistance is not futile.